0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 502. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please go and visit evergreenpodcasts.com. I'd like to give a quick shout-out and thanks for putting up a five-star review by DTLD, United States. Thank you very much. So this week's interview is with Dr. Michael Hauser. Dr. Hauser is an emeritus astronomer. In his capacity as Deputy Director of the Space Telescope Science Institute, Mike was instrumental in transforming the Institute into a multi-observatory organization that included the work on the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescope programs. Mike was a member of the Kobe science team and was part of the Nobel Prize delegation in Stockholm in 2006, and the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to John Mather and George Smoot for their discoveries using NASA's COBE satellite. In this conversation with Mike, we discuss his career highlights, some of the key discoveries he was part of, the challenges and benefits of international collaborations in light of geopolitics, the value of theory versus observation, the future of space exploration, and the nature of ambition in space. You'll find all the show notes on MinterDial.com. And please, if you have a moment, do drop in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Mike Hauser. Hello. Good morning, Minter. It's great to have you on the show. I'm really delighted to be able to chat with you. So just um, for people who are listening, to start off with, uh, tell me, where are you calling in from, Mike? I'm calling from my retirement home in Baltimore, Maryland. A place I know well, because my father is there too. So Mike, in your own words, how would you like to describe yourself? I'm a much retired
1: astrophysicist. I'm a physicist by training. In fact, my early career was in um, nuclear physics, particle physics, high energy physics, uh, working on accelerators to explore the structure of matter. But I became interested in astrophysics uh, and involved largely because I was invited to form an, a new research group in infrared astronomy in space by a senior scientist at Goddard Space Flight Center whom I knew well. And um, he had confidence that if I were to form such a group, it would be successful. And indeed it was. In our early years, we proposed two spaceflight experiments, one of which became the infrared uh, astronomical satellite jointly with the Dutch, uh, that did the first survey of the whole sky at far infrared wavelengths. And the second, Proposed at the same time was called the Cosmic Background Explorer, which was to make precision measurements of the cosmic microwave background radiation, which had been previously discovered and was proof that the Big Bang really occur- occurred. That was the rem- remnant radiation predicted for the universe if there had been a Big Bang. And um, so our Cosmic Background Explorer satellite was designed to make more precise measurements of that radiation, and it was successful as well. Two members of that team actually received Nobel prizes for the quality of the measurements that we made. I was just a
0: member. I wanted to ask you, Mike. Just to circle back at the very beginning. What actually got you started on this journey of astrophysics? You, you were talking about how you. Were brought into the specialization and and the output and f- figuring out how to find these remnants of the Big Bang, but what what was early Mike, what what got him started on astrophysics was it looking up at the stars and saying hmm? Well, it's interesting.
1: I, um, as I said, I started out doing research on high energy physics, and I was trained in math and physics. And although the Sputnik satellite was launched in the first few months of my uh, undergraduate career at Cornell, I had no immediate interest in getting involved in that. Um, And so that didn't happen until many years later. I was uh, working in high energy physics, but largely as a postdoc, And I was interested in a little more secure uh, employment. As one does. I I had a family, wife and two kids. Mm -hmm. And so when the invitation came from uh, a senior scientist at Goddard Space Flight Center who knew me and said, uh, wouldn't I like to start an infrared astrophysics uh, program in space? I uh, responded with great enthusiasm
0: and they hired me. So that's where you pivoted into the astrophysics part of it. I get it.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm.
0: So if you look back at your career, Mike, illustrious as it is, was there one thing that stands out as the highlight of your career, a moment that you can remember, or a thing that you achieved? Well, um, there, there are some. Of
1: course, the award of the Nobel Prize to my teammates on the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite acronym COBE was a great thrill. <clears throat> Our team actually received a a uh, prestigious prize earlier that same year. That was in 2006. Um, what what was called the um, uh, Gruber Family Foundation Prize in Cosmology, uh, and that was awarded to the whole team. Um, so I felt quite good about that. And of course, even more so when a few months later, the Nobel Prizes were announced and two of my colleagues were singled out as Nobel laureates, which led to a wonderful week in Stockholm. We all went there to watch them receiving the prize and that was
0: extremely exciting. Yeah, I've never really, I mean, I've talked to a few Nobel laureates, but I've never asked what it's like to be in the room in the moment, the solemnity of the and the, the joy of receiving such a prize.
2: Right. Well,
1: we, we witnessed all of that. Um, we were, but we, I say, uh, my wife and I, Deanna, and I um, went to Stockholm. We uh, acquired the necessary formal attire to attend the uh, formal events of awarding of the prize. The King of Sweden uh, presents the prize to the laureates and the... Uh, so we were sitting in the audience, uh, bird's eye view of all of that.
0: And that was very exciting. I can well imagine. So I was just listening to you, Mike, and thinking about how when you look at a photograph of the space, photographs taken by Hubble or James Webb or, or whatever, I wonder how you look at them differently than I do because I look at them and I look at them maybe from an aesthetic standpoint, I recognize I'm just a layman. I, 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 I'm, I, I'm guessing that you, you, you almost can pick out what's happening. Certainly you, you, you know how difficult it was to achieve it. How does that change the way you view these photographs versus someone like me, complete, you know, non-astrophysicist? Well,
1: I, uh, I can interpret, based on my experiences, what I'm seeing. Um, But it is still remarkable that um, we can see very distant galaxies. Uh, The Hubble telescope has seen the most distant star yet recorded. Um, And Hubble is still remarkably working well. Uh, I remember the uh, challenges of getting Hubble to work uh, because of the flaw in the shape of the mirror, and the the challenges of changing of servicing Hubble. I was involved with. I was on the science management team for each of the servicing missions that. Uh, had to plan and then practice many times before any given servicing mission. But anyway, when I look at the sky as imaged by Hubble, and that's in the ultraviolet and visible light, it's very familiar, I understand what we're seeing. But when I look at the sky as seen by the James Webb Space Telescope, which we now have working spectacularly well for us, I had a hand in promoting the development of a large telescope capable of far infrared observations on um, which instead of seeing the starlight directly they see the heated gas and dust in galaxies produced by the starlight and and so that's an entirely different view of the universe and to me it's very exciting because i've been working in the infrared for many years
0: and presumably, it's a little fulfilling too to to know that you've contributed to these instruments and and to what they're able to bring back to us in terms of photographs.
1: Right. I,
0: I was uh, there are many
1: advisory processes that go on before deciding what to do in space, <clears throat> and I've been on numerous such committees. One in particular was called the HST Hubble Space Telescope and Beyond which uh, was one of the first to say, okay, Hubble's in the plan. What are we going to do next? And in that committee, uh, of which I was a member, there was a recommendation for a fairly large aperture far-infrared telescope, which, in fact, Webb has exceeded what we suggested at the time, but sort of marginally larger. So I feel very good about having had a hand in all that.
0: I can bet. And you were mentioning just before about with Hubble, the the, the, the size of the mirror. As I've read, uh, we're talking about minute differences, uh, as I understand it, and, and, and the level of detail that you must go down to. So first of all, correct me if I'm wrong about how, what type of millimeter, you know, or whatever it is, size differences that we're talking about. Cause obviously, we're talking about very large mirrors, And everything has to be down to such a ridiculously small detail.
1: Well, the Hubble primary mirror was a a spectacular embarrassment uh, because the outer edge of it was not um, machined to the right dimension. And as a result, the images initially were fuzzy. And there had been huge expectations of Hubble. Finally, a major telescope in space, unimpeded, unimpeded by atmospheric interference. And the, the, the direct images were fuzzy and couldn't be focused. It probably escaped much of the public's attention that Hubble was still working initially perfectly well with its spectrometer. Uh, which didn't need such a sharp image to uh, collect and analyze the spectrum of objects that it was uh, looking for. So, science program went on, but a major engineering well uh, analysis of what the problem was, and when they when they analyzed the shape of the images, they recognized that it was a simple optical defect called spherical aberration that. Accounted for the fuzziness of the images, and so then some very brilliant engineering was done to invent a way to add an additional optical element between the mirror and each instrument that would correct that optical aberration, and and the mechanical design to put they they needed a, a um, such a special. Corrective mirror for each of the instruments on Hubble, and an engineer involved was at a trip to uh, England, and in taking a shower, he noticed that the shower had a sliding holder for the sp- for the spray, and thought, "Aha! I can build a replacement instrument for Hubble with a sliding bar." and put a, an optical mm-hmm. correction mirror for each of the instruments on there and then deploy those individual arms. And that's the first fix that was done for Hubble we called the corrective optics for space telescope axial replacements.
0: Well, in the, in the layman's term, I might call that another Eureka, <laughs> not in a bath, but in a shower. <laughs>
1: In a shower and uh, definitely it was and
0: uh, that's a good a good description of it so i i personally my career has always been in business and and I, I the idea sometimes of of success within a business can be marred by internal politics in in space exploration we've got a lot of external politics but we also have internal politics you know within your Your cohorts, uh, people have career plans. Then you have the the intellect, the international components of it, where politics and and uh, budgets from governments. And then you have the technical aspects of actually putting the 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 materials together to do what you're trying to achieve. When you look at what you've worked on, Mike, which are those are, are the hardest, or is it always all of them that are hard? I guess every step
1: has its hard challenges. The major space programs are generally done collaboratively between nations. And there are uh, national interests that sometimes conflict. A simple early example, in fact, was on the very first infrared astronomy mission that I worked on called the Infrared Astronomical Survey that was a satellite or IRAS was a joint mission between the Netherlands and the US at very early time in the space program. This was a small scale by later standards uh, mission. The Dutch had flown one of their own in ultraviolet visible light and they wanted to do one in the infrared and, and approach NASA about teaming on it. Well, NASA formed a team of scientists to meet with the Dutch and see if there was a meeting in the minds about what might be undertaken. And so I was part of a team that was sent over to the Netherlands uh, to meet with the Dutch team. And there was a very distinct difference in the concept for how to do that survey mission. The Dutch had the idea they would build some kind of wonderful, powerful computer that would gather the data from the sky and immediately send to the ground a catalog of the sources that they saw. The Americans thought that was entirely foolish, that you had to bring down the actual data right down to the noise level and do the careful analysis of what sources might exist using ground based analysis. In the end, the American idea prevailed, and that was a wonderful thing that it did. Uh, and IRAS produced wonderful catalogs and wonderful surprises about the sky even at the depth of a relatively small telescope so that's the kind of conflicts that constantly have to be ironed out and agreed upon
0: right so your collaborations and I have my uh I have a wonderful friend in France who Arnaud who who works in in space like you do like you do and, and have and astrophysicist that he is and uh, he, tell, he talks to me about collaborating with the Chinese, uh, with the Russians. I mean mm-hmm. it doesn't get any scarier if you will at the at the geopolitical level. And I'm wondering to what extent those will interfere with I mean obviously the Russians uh, it has interfered specifically now but in general, over the course of your career, how how much did that conversation? about geopolitics enter into your collaborations, if any, with other powers like China, India, Russia?
1: I did have interaction with Russian scientists. And at one time, the Russians were eager to collaborate uh, and their government wasn't funding such activity. And uh, the scientists that were interested visited Goddard space flight center where I was working and basically they were um, desperate for jobs. Uh, And um, so we did what we could to give them a comfortable visit to the States and encourage them to continue to try to get involved. But, But those things are very difficult when we, you know, we weren't diplomats, we were just scientists and, uh, as far as the Chinese and the uh, Indians, I've had no involvement with those communities. And whether, I, I mean, certainly the Chinese have had successful space programs, so, you know, impressively landing spacecraft on the far side of the moon, for example. I'm less familiar with uh, what can be done in India, but I believe they probably are technologically fairly advanced as well.
2: How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roose, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast, Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies
1: reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking
2: ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube.
0: So I had a, um, I've had a cosmonaut, a trained cosmonaut on my uh show actually Esther Dyson I don't know if you have ever come across her name but she yeah. trained speaks fluent Russian she's an American who yes uh, she, she is she a relative of Freeman Dyson no uh, oh yes that's the, the mathematician right yes yes exactly yes I I knew him um <clears throat> a brilliant man so and she is brilliant too by the way um and I was just thinking about how you collaborate when you, and you're and you talking about the Dutch, for example, they had their, their thesis, if you will, you had your thesis, obviously money comes into play in terms of the decision-making, but how do you, is there any sort of key to resolving those types of, in this case, I would say material differences in terms of the way you wanted to put this together? How did you, how do you come up with the solution because you both want to do the same thing, I'm imagining, but you have different ways. And is it just a, an argument of, of proving that my solution is better than yours? How, how do you come to a solution, really?
1: That's a very interesting question.
0: <clears throat> I think,
1: you know, in human terms, that tends to sometimes come down to who is the most aggressive. Uh, and we had some very aggressive members of our U.S. team, uh, based on many years of actual experience in doing the kinds of instrumentation that we wanted to do on that early satellite, for example, uh, talking about with the Dutch, and so they they prevailed in the uh, discussions, um, with one slight exception. The, the Dutch had a very eminent senior astronomer who wanted to have a special beta channel included in the focal plane instrumentation of the telescope and so a spot in the focal plane was allocated to him thankfully i don't remember his name and wouldn't want to embarrass him if i did so we had what we call the uh, the hole in addition to the survey instruments we had a hole uh, in the focal plane
0: for the data for his desire his need well so it does so there basically what you're saying is I hear it Mike is that personalities come into play in in the way things get resolved
1: very definitely
0: um you know space Endeavor
1: is a human Endeavor uh and there's a lot of human emotion involved human pride uh, as well as national interests that often must be recognized. Uh, I mean, the Dutch interest in infrared mission at that early time was because their government wanted to develop their space technology capability. And that, that was a fact of life. So human activities ultimately come down to humans.
0: To what extent do you believe, Mike, that the work in space it being still somewhat far out can be a a peace peaceful initiative where it can bring these warring nations on earth together is it is it still feasible or have we gone into another zone in your mind according to what's happening these days
1: well, i think it's very much still feasible it's still going on uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is an international collaborative program involving both the European Space Agency and NASA. And it physically will continue to function indefinitely. But questions, will will there be a, some perceived need to turn it off? I don't know. Um,
0: I hope not. When you look out into or, or the future of space exploration, what are the things that excite you the most about what's possible? And the next question is, what frightens you the most in terms of what the future of space exploration could be?
1: And at the present time, there are very definite recommendations as to what comes next in several areas. One is the exploration of planets around other stars. Uh, We now know that there are almost every star has planets. Some have detectable planetary systems, multiples planets around a star. So there's a great deal of curiosity about how do such things form? What's the nature of them? What is the chance that we are alone, that we're the only planetary system in which conditions were such that life could develop. That's a major challenging question, in addition to which astronomy has expanded in the tools that are available to collect data from the sky. It it no longer is just various forms of electromagnetic radiation, light. We also receive energetic particles from various uh, galactic systems or extragalactic systems. We have major progress in seeing early events in the history of the the, uh, universe because, contrary to Einstein's expectations, his general relativity theory predicted the existence of um, gravity ra- gravitational radiation. He thought it was going to be too weak to detect, but 21st century astronomers have figured out how to detect it, and in fact have made a direct measurement of the merging of two massive black holes the centers of galaxies that were merging and forming a new black hole. And the detailed calculations from relativity theory perfectly predicted the nature of the radiation that was received. So gravitational radiation is a new form of observing the universe uh, that we now have. Ultra high energy neutrinos, which are products of high energy collisions of particles can now also be observed even though neutrinos have such limited interaction with matter that a single neutrino can pass right through the Earth without de- without interacting with anything. But massive bursts of, of neutrinos of high energy can be detected with massive detectors in the ocean, actually. And so there are lots of new tools available for... Reading the cosmos, and there is also very substantial attention going to the sociological aspects of research, of diversity of opportunity, uh, diversity of participation, sharing of the resources available to pursue research in astronomy and astrophysics. So there are many aspects presently that are innovations and and um,
0: And discoveries, (laughs) yes. to to use an expression that is uh, debatable. Um, So there are lots of interesting things that are out there. When I, as a layman, observe the news around space, typical of the news, perhaps, they seem to present things in a less good light, so to speak. (laughs) For example, the number of satellites and the different times that anti-satellite warfare I suppose has been going on where Russians or Chinese or Americans are shooting down satellites sometimes in proximity to the space station so this whole the whole idea this network of maybe tens of thousands of satellites that are up there seems rather scary for me to think that we we rely so much on these things for our our daily existence now but I feel maybe that's just too terrestrial for you almost. Uh, but do you do you have anything that you think is frightening about what's out there, whether it's a an asteroid that's gonna hurtle towards us or sun's gonna burn us up? <laughs> what 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 does what goes in what goes around in Mike Hauser's mind as he as you listen to this?
1: Well, we know enough about stellar evolution that it's going to be some billions of years before the sun seriously threatens us to burn up. As far as fleets of man-made satellites, they're broadcasting at radio wavelengths to the ground and, of course, emitting infrared radiation because they're at a finite temperature. And they certainly constitute a foreground of confusing noise if you like so we have we have to take account of that and and it may
0: set limits to just how
1: sensitively we can observe at
0: certain conditions so let me let me uh keeping on the the idea of the future and exploration uh then this question my friend arnaud and his uh scientific director david Elbaz, i wanted to ask you specifically which is when you think about future discoveries or to answer the big questions of the of the universe such as when did the big bang go and all that do you think that we will succeed more through theory or by observation
1: i'm a firm believer that we need both we need theory but the theory has to be validated by critical observation that can tell us whether or not the theory predictions are in fact substantiated, in which case we have more confidence in the theory, and if predictions of the theory are violated by observations, then we know that theory isn't right. And that's sort of the, the way we make progress in science, and, and so it takes a combination of the two. Um, being an observer, I certainly believe that that's a critical part of the uh, advancement.
2: So there's, in, one,
1: there's one threat from outer space I neglected to mention, impacts of space objects on the earth, asteroids or, or comets that survive, passage through the atmosphere and collide with the earth. There have been such. A major one occurred in Russia in recent historic times and obliterated a large area surrounding the impact site we have uh, nasa has a program to try to minimize the amount of that threat by sending satellites to collide with objects perceived as being in orbits that could uh, collide with the earth uh, and deflect them and they had a successful test recently Uh, to impact an asteroid on a potential collision orbit. They collided with it and observed the result of the collision, in fact, with the Webb telescope. So they could see the nature of the debris from the collision, which tells them more about the nature of the object itself. Was it a solid object? Was it a bunch of pebbles collected together? and did succeed in modifying the orbit of that object. So we can, I presume, look forward to missions doing that sort of thing to help mitigate the magnitude of that possible threat to us.
0: So it's an example of, of the theory being proved out by a uh, an observable action where you send the satellite, it hits it, it moves enough, and so based on the mass, Of the object and the speed with which it hit next time depending on the size of the object we kind of have a good idea as to what it's going to take to move it sufficiently out of the orbit to not hit us right so thank you (laughs) so um about the future projects i don't know to what extent you're privy to all the future projects but do you feel that they are ambitious enough to answer the big questions of space?
1: The simple answer is yes. There is a process by which the scientific community projects their desires, expresses them to the government in the U.S. and elsewhere. It's called the Decadal Survey of Infrared Astronomy and Astrophysics. It's It occurs on 10-year timescales, sponsored by the agencies that fund Astronomical Research, the National Science Foundation, NASA, Air Force Office of Scientific Research and the Department of Energy, Office of High Energy uh, Physics. Um, All of them fund some aspect of astrophysical research. So they initiate this request to the National Academy of Sciences and to the what's called Associated Universities for Research in Astronomy, an organization formed back in the 50s, maybe even earlier, which initially consisted of seven universities actively engaged in astronomy research. Now there are 46 domestic institutions called Aura, Associated Universities for Research in Astronomy. And so on these 10-year cycles, They institute a major review of the current state of the field, of the pressing problems that look like could be um, profitably pursued at the present time with the current capabilities. And so in 2020, they had such a survey, it was the most recent one. And there are very ambitious lists of things that the community suggested uh, in, during that survey. So I would say it will be wonderful if they can all be carried out. Um, the, the, uh, the survey includes estimates of what they think it will cost to do them and uh, are quite detailed in the uh, nature of the projects, actual technologies and facilities that are desirable in order to do that. So, I'm impressed with the with the work of the of, of those studies the top level committee is really all members of the National Academy of Sciences so they're very capable people and there are sub panels on all kinds of specific discipline topics that contribute to it. So I would say there's reason for optimism that much of this is going to happen within the next decade Some of it, goes beyond a decade timescale.
0: In listening to you, I didn't hear many international uh, participants. Are these groups also including associations and collaborations with other agencies from other countries or is this specifically the US way?
1: Um, this organization that I mentioned, the Associated Universities for Research and Astronomy, Includes forty-six domestic institutions and four international uh, associates. So yes, it does involve the rest of the world, and um, um, those are mostly from Europe, of course,
0: like France, maybe Germany, France, Eng- England, Germany. Germany. Yeah. So when you when we go for these new ambitious projects, I have to imagine just. You know, back of the envelope, that the more ambitious, the more expensive the projects. To what extent are budgets being allocated to space? Do you feel like this is uh, an increasing allocation or it's getting tighter and decreasing?
1: That is always a tough question. Um, At the present time, we're in kind of tight fiscal times in the U.S. and in other countries, uh, and it requires an act of Congress to allocate public resources to do these things. Those who made the recommendations made estimates of what it would cost uh, at a level that they thought might conceivably be made available. But every year, it brings a new budget Conflict, so um, remains to be seen. I'm not a politician, and I don't can't easily judge the reaction on Capitol Hill.
0: Well, inevitably, at in in a national political environment, whichever party's in in position, the other will take the opposite opinion, and then when they are in power, maybe it'll be complete reversal. Because I don't think, and I can't imagine that space by itself is political is far more philosophical but then when you started looking internationally there are there do become national interests in the way we go about space and there's a little bit of the you know the cock, the guy who says well I was there first I I did this first there's the ego and national pride associated with it then there are uh, the amount of work that goes into that that has corollary benefits to industry, as we've seen with NASA over and over again. So I I, I suppose at the end of the day, it has to be somewhat political because at the end of the day, someone has to pay for it. Someone has to be responsible. And then someone wants to be tagged with the Nobel prize to say, well, I, I did it kind of thing.
1: It's my understanding. And I may be misinformed that at the present time, I mean, usually these collaborative missions are done between NASA and the European Space Agency, at least. That at the present time, the European Space Agency has not allocated resources for future space missions, uh, which would be a considerable problem in trying to do something large. So I don't know, you know how long it'll take the various parts of the world to deal with the pressing economic issues that are more urgent than supporting space research but there's going to be limitations on the short term
0: and what about private initiatives elon musk spacex bezos with space blue virgin galactica Um, what what's your opinion of all that and how useful will that be in the earth's mission of discovering space
1: i'm more familiar with their successes in technology and being able to launch and recover uh, satellites, I don't know how much research is being accomplished by those missions. Now, they have put astronauts on the moon and brought them back, uh, or at least to the vicinity of the moon and brought them back. And there's some information gained by doing that. And especially about the uh, capabilities of humans to handle spaceflight and both launch and landing. But I'm, I do not know of major scientific breakthroughs as a result of those
0: programs. Those breakthroughs and the larger ambitious spatial projects probably have to be university and government-sponsored agencies. Is that correct? Yes. Yes.
1: Uh, Universities tend to get their money from the government. They, they are not independent sure. funds fund sources. Uh, there are some universities who fund their own observatories, like like Mount Palomar telescope is is uh, funded by a Carnegie Institute Carnegie Institution, uh, or has at least historically been, which is private money but there's limited amount of that to, you know what what private
0: money can do so with your work mike in the cosmic background radiation are we any closer to discovering uh, the exact date or how, how about the big bang i mean this is like the <laughs> sort of for anybody who looks at space we always want to think about the big bang do you think we're getting closer to it will we will we ever get that date is how important is it to have that exact date
1: i don't believe it's important to have an exact date it is important to know that the universe is expanding has been expanding from an initial an initial very hot dense state by processes some of which we still don't understand the physics of Uh, we don't know the physics or whatever went on prior to the start of the Big Bang or that caused it to initiate. Um, So there's plenty of physics to be worked out. As far as the actual date, uh, we know with some accuracy that the observable universe is 13.8 billion light years in size and and we can account for the way the universe has evolved to the to the state that we see with physics that we know with the physics of quantum mechanics with the physics of general relativity and and uh, and i think that's you know that's remarkable we can explain how we have the content of the cosmos that we can see starting from this early this early state that we can't go beyond yet
0: and in your mind is there even a possibility that there's some other bigger absorbing entity universe that's in which the big bang happened and we 13.8 billion light years have been expanding but is that possible that that exists in some other bigger huger thing or is that something that theoretically is not viable. Uh,
1: there has been talk about the idea of a multiverse. Yeah. There have been a succession of big bangs in different parts of the universe producing much the same situation that we do see visibly to us. I don't know to what you know I, I don't know how much credence to give to those ideas. What what would it look like if there were
0: it's pretty imponderable
1: pretty imponderable I I think it is a sufficient scientific triumph that we can say what's happened since our big bang that it happened there's remnant radiation from it that we've discovered the cosmic microwave background radiation uh, that confirms that it happened and the the details of what came after that just look them up in the physics books
0: so just last question for you mike looking back at your career everything you've done the the people you've met astronauts you've talked to and and the things you've been able to you've been privy to see at your level what kind of advice would you give to people listening and thinking about the future of our earth planet what what would you like to tell them that would be the wisdom of your career coming in after so many glorious interesting experiences and encounters
1: I strongly
0: encourage future generations to
1: continue the push to understand the cosmos in which we live to understand the planet on which we live to understand the solar system in which we live, and to understand the physics uh, governing all of these systems from the microscopic level of quantum mechanics to the macro level of general relativity. All of these things are a part of the fabric that we live in and enrich us whenever we have insights that... Deal with any of these aspects. So, from my point of view, it's a fantastically exciting life to pursue and become part of, and encourage the pursuit of that knowledge. And um, so, have at it. I'll be a I'll be a happy observer for hopefully some time yet. But
0: indeed. And but when you when you've done all this work, I, I'm I'm having to imagine it puts perspective on the travails, the minutia travails of going to the grocery and getting milk and and the the things that we do in a prosaic manner in our day when you have this other vision of what's out there?
1: You're suggesting there's a large disconnect between the practical and the uh, the bigger
0: picture, and I certainly... Well, I I, I certainly feel, I I don't know if it's a disconnect, but I, I certainly feel it helps... Put perspective on some of the things that we live in our and we get worried about.
1: Well, I certainly agree with that. But there is joy in having the bigger perspective and pleasure in having that perspective um, that I have certainly enjoyed, and I encourage many future generations to do continue to seek that kind of perspective.
0: Mike Hauser, many thanks for taking some time out to give us your experiences, your perspective on all this. As I have you on my show, I I, I do this with purpose because I enjoy the idea of providing people with a new perspective, because it's very easy in today's world to get sucked up into the bad news, the the day-to-day gruel, and uh, add a little bit of air, space in between the mind. Uh, and uh, to help us all uh, enjoy our lives a little bit more. Thank you very much, Mike. My pleasure.
1: It's been a joy to talk with you, Minter.
0: Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, or would like to support me, please consider a donation on Patreon.com forward slash Minter You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews. Are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 or more blog posts on Mintadal.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lean How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. <laughs>
2: I'm a convinced man, building an urge. I'm a convinced man, to live and die suburb. a convinced man, in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate. I'm a convinced man, competition's innate. I'm of a woman